Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to this presentation hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies, located at Durham University in Durham, England, a Center for Catholic Theology in the Public Academy. For more information, please visit our website at centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following paper was presented by Professor Neil Ormerod of the Catholic University of Australia as part of the Catholic Theology Research Seminar series. The paper is entitled, How the Trinitarian God Acts in Creation, Augustine, Aquinas, and Lonergan. So the Trinity is a central mystery of our Christian faith. The New Testament is suffused with a Trinitarian imagination, which carries through into the early liturgies and prayers of the emerging church, culminating in the Trinitarian controversies and their resolution in the creeds of Nicaea and Constantinople. The Nicaean-Constantinople Creed has been a touchstone of Trinitarian orthodoxy, orthodoxy in both East and West ever since, despite our disagreements over the filioque. Given the centrality of this belief, the theological issue in the spirit of faith-seeking understanding is how are we to understand what we hold to be true in faith? Commonly, this theological question of understanding focuses attention on the three persons in one God. How can God be one, one nature, and three, three persons? And this is obviously an important and indeed central question. Unless some response, however analogous to this question, can be given, Christians are left without an answer to even the simplest questions about what they believe. Uh, this was brought home to me, just a little uh, anecdote. Um, I was at a niftar dinner. You know, a niftar dinner is when Muslims break their fast at the end of the day of Ramadan. It was a big public event. Um, and I was sitting next to a young Muslim guy. And so we started chatting and he said uh, his mother was Catholic and his father was Muslim. And so they let him decide uh, what he would become. And the one thing he said he couldn't understand was the doctrine of the Trinity. So he started asking Catholics what they believed. Well, you can imagine what the outcome of that was. Uh, he said he even asked a bishop and got nowhere. So he thought if Catholics don't know what they believe, why should he believe it? And he became a Muslim. So that's belief, which is mere words without understanding. However, there is another not unrelated issue hidden in the creed. How can this God who is three in one act in human history? Already in the creed, we read that, quote, for us and for our salvation, he, the Son, came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate in the Virgin Mary. And that the Spirit has spoken through the prophets. These assertions seem to indicate specific engagements by the Son and Spirit in the economy of salvation. Put simply, it is the Son who is incarnate in Jesus of Nazareth, not the Father or the Spirit. How can this be? This question is made more complicated because of the theological axiom to the effect that all works at extra, that is not internal to the Trinity itself, are the works of the one God, Father, Son, and Spirit without distinction. 
This axiom, which goes back to Augustine, was reaffirmed by Pius XII in Mystici Corporis Christi. Let all hold this as certain truth, that all these activities at extra are common to the most blessed trinity, insofar as they have God as supreme efficient cause. Read blindly, this axiom would threaten to rob us of what we explicitly affirm. How can we know of the Blessed Trinity unless there is some distinctive activity or presence of the divine persons in the created order? And so we're left with a theological problem. On the one hand, we want to affirm the distinctive activities of at least the Son and the Spirit within the created order, on the other hand, there are strict limits about how we might conceive of such activities as occurring. What I propose to consider here is what, a, what can be called a genetic sequence of theological attempts to address this problem. The first attempt is none other than Augustine himself in his profound work De Trinitate. Augustine grasped the issue that finds no clear resolution. We then move to Aquinas, who provides a theologically solid response through his linkage of the two divine processions and the two missions. We then consider the contribution of Bernard Lonigan, who generalises the construct used by Aquinas to a consideration of the four Trinitarian relations and four created participations in the divine nature what has come to be called the four-point hypothesis. It's not a great name, but we're stuck with it at present. I shall conclude with some observations about how this approach might impact on our understanding of Jesus as the one in whom the fullness of divinity dwells. So, Augustine and divine relationality. In Book 5 of De Trinitate, Augustine shifts from his biblical arguments in books 1 to 4 to move into a theoretical mode based on the category of relation. This allows him to distinguish between things said substance-wise in relation to God and things said relation-wise by which the, divine, the persons of the Trinity may be dis differentiated. He can then address arguments raised by Arian objections to the Trinity, an effective philosophical manner. He'd already done it in a biblical manner in books one, two, four, but in books five he shifts into this philosophical mode. In this discussion, Augustine expands what will become classical Trinitarian formulations concerning what can be said or affirmed about the Father, Son and Spirit. Whatever is said in relation to them substance-wise is said of all three equally, and I quote, So then the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, the Spirit is almighty, yet there are not three almighties, but only one almighty. This type of formulation is fully exploited in what we call the Athanasian Creed, really post-Augustinian. The only distinction that can arise is in terms of their relations. Yes. But as for the things each of the three in this triad is called that are proper or peculiar to himself, such things are never said with reference to the self, 
but only with reference to each other or to creation. And therefore it is clear that they are said by way of relationship and not by way of substance. The phrase, but not only with reference to each other or to creation, that last bit is, I would claim, pregnant with possibility. The translator of the text, Edmund Hill, is aware that something is happening here, but is quick to dismiss it as a confusion. Augustine is indeed feeling his way here, as Hill suggests, but perhaps in regard to a more profound question of how to relate the Trinity to the created order in the case of incarnation and grace. Can the same logic of relations be exploited to provide a framework for understanding such an extension of divine activity to individual persons of the Trinity? While Augustine does not directly make the connection, he does begin to assemble the component parts. He begins with an analysis of the relationship between the Spirit and the Father and the Son. Though he says, we say the Spirit of the Father, but we do not reverse it and say the Father of the Spirit, or we should take the Spirit to be his Son. Again, we say the Spirit of the Son, but we do not say the Son of the Spirit, or we should take the Spirit to be his Father. Fairly simple argument. The only solution to this situation is to posit a relationship of Father and Son to the Holy Spirit, the filioque, as a single origin. Yeah. We must confess that the Father and the Son are the origin of the Holy Spirit. Not two origins, but just as the Father and the Son are one God, and with reference to creation, one Creator and one Lord, so with reference to the Holy Spirit, they are one origin. But with reference to the creation, Father and Son and Holy Spirit are one origin, just as they are one Creator and one Lord. What is significant here is the analogy Augustine draws between the relationship of the Father, Son and Spirit as one God to creation and the relationship between Father and Son to the Spirit. Both are relations of origin, though one is ad extra and the other is ad intra. Augustine then pushes the matter further by examining the notion of the Spirit as gift. Is gift a relational name? Or is it a name that emerges only in the created order when the Spirit is actually given to us? Next. How could, sorry, how could he already be the divine substance if he only is by being given? Or is the answer that the Holy Spirit always proceeds and proceeds from eternity, not from a point in time, but because he so proceeds as to be givable, he was already gift even before there was anyone to give him to. To be given from a point in time implies a, implies a created reality. Augustine certainly wants the spirit to proceed eternally, 
but leaves open the possibility of the spirit being given at some point in time as a donation, introducing a distinction between being a gift and being actually donated. And to quote him, The spirit, to make myself clear, is everlasting gift, but only donation from a point in time. In other words, a contingent reality is being predicated to the spirit as a donation, which arises from his personal identity as gift, but which is distinct from it precisely as contingent. Now this leads Augustine immediately into a discussion of the more general question of the relationship between God and creation. So he moves from the Trinitarian question to the more general question of how does God relate to the created order and how contingent realities can be predicated of God. To quote him, look, this is the problem. It cannot be everlasting, Lord, or we would be compelled to say that creation is everlasting because he would only be everlasting, Lord, if creation were everlastingly serving him. The discussion which now follows is a classical exposition of the issue of contingent predication. Yep. Thus, when God is called something with reference to creation, while indeed he begins to be called it in time, we should understand that this does not involve anything happening to God's own substance, but only to the created thing to which the relationship predicated of him refers. So it is clear that anything that can be said about God in time, which was not said about him before, is said by way of relationship and not yet by way of a modification of God, as though something was modified, something has modified him. Now, Book 5 ends here rather abruptly and somewhat incomplete, in my opinion. <coughs> Augustine has introduced the distinction between the spirit as gift and the spirit as donation. He has explored the notion of contingent predication, to conclude that any contingent predication of God to the created order is by way of relationship. All that is needed is to bring the spirit relation to the Father and the Son into the ambit of contingent predication to say that this relation is something like the way in which we can speak of the spirit as donation through a form of contingent predication. So a relation based not just on the creator-creature relation, but in some sense analogous to the relation, relationship of father and son to the spirit. So this is a step he does not take. And so we move to Aquinas and Summa Theologiae. The one who does take this step is Thomas Aquinas, in his account of the Trinitarian missions, in eight articles, Aquinas explores what can truly be said about the various persons in relation to the divine missions of Psalm and Spirit. He begins by spelling out the ways in which a divine person can be sent. This mission has a double aspect. Thus, the mission of a divine person is a fitting thing, as meaning in one way 
the procession of origin from the sender, and meaning and as meaning a new way of existing in another. Thus the Father is said to be sent, uh, the Son is said to be sent by the Father into the world, inasmuch as he began to exist visibly in the world by taking our nature. This new way of existing in another is a contingent reality precisely because it is in a creature. But this new way of being is related in some sense to the procession of origin from the sender. Mission and procession are related through a contingent reality. This is spelt out more clearly in another article where he asks whether the mission is temporal, uh, sorry, whether the mission is eternal or only temporal. Here Aquinas comes to the important conclusion. Mission signifies not only procession from the principle, but also determines the temporal term of the procession. Hence, mission is only temporal, or we may say that it includes the eternal procession with the addition of a temporal effect. For the relation of a divine person to his principle must be eternal. Hence, a procession may be called a twin procession, eternal and temporal. Not that there is a double relation to the principle, but a double term for the procession, one temporal and one eternal. You can see here a position which is very similar to von Balthasar, because von Balthasar identifies the mission with the procession. But if you hold that strictly, uh, you end up in a modalist position. Because if you have no creation, then you have no mission. You have no mission, you have no procession. And you end up with just a monotheistic God. Uh, where Aquinas differs is by saying, yes, it is, the mission is the procession plus a created term. So, and that created term is contingent, not necessary. And so the mission comprises the procession with the addition of a temporal effect or created term. This created term places the recipient in the same relationship to its origin as does the term of the procession in relation to its origin. It's a double term. Through this created term, the divine person is genuinely sent into the created order. Now, Aquinas immediately goes on to specify this process in terms of sanctifying grace and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Again, we are said to possess only what we can freely use or enjoy. And to have the power of enjoying the divine person can only be according to sanctifying grace. And yet the Holy Ghost is possessed by man and dwells within him in the very gift itself of sanctifying grace. Hence the Holy Ghost himself is given and sent. Though it's not explicit in the text, the Spirit proceeds by active spiration. He is breathed by the Father and the Son. And for the Spirit to be given and sent, there needs to be a created term in the grace person, which in some sense imitates the uncreated term of active spiration, the Holy Spirit. 
This extends the ways in which a creature imitates God as the exemplary cause of all creation through their natural act of being into the supernatural order whereby the temporal term in the supernaturally elevated subject imitates the term of the intradivine relation of active spiration. Just as God is not changed in the relation of creature, created creature, neither is the spirit changed through the creation of this new relation. But the creature is radically changed through the presence of the spirit existing in a new way within us. In doing this, Aquinas takes a step that Augustine did not. The pieces were all there in Datri de Tate, but they were not combined. It took a more ordered presentation, driven by a stronger systematic exigence, to arrive at the place where Aquinas could stand. Of course, the account does not end there. There are other aspects to deal with. While I've already seen reference above to the sending of the sun, this is not dealt with in detail until much later in the summer. So in the third part of the summer, Aquinas spends a number of questions considering the nature of the incarnation and its necessity. In one article he asks, whether the union of the divine nature and the human is anything created. In responding, we find Aquinas immediately referring to the structure of contingent predication. Where are we? Is it? Yep, yep, yep. Uh, now, as was said above, every relation which we consider between God and the creature is really in the creature. So that reference to the Summa there, question 13, uh, should be Article 7, uh, is where Aquinas deals with this question of the relationship between God and creation. <clears throat> By whose change the relation is brought into being. Whereas it's not really in God, but only in our way of thinking, since it does not arise from any change in God. And hence we must say that the union of which we are speaking is not really in God, except only in our way of thinking, but in the human nature, which is, which is a creature. It is really. Therefore we must say it is something created. He will further specify this relation in terms of a divine hypostasis. So a man, Jesus of Nazareth, is called creator and is God because of the union, inasmuch as it, the man, is terminated in a divine hypostasis. Thus there is a created contingent reality in the human nature which enables us to say that this human being truly is the second person of the Trinity. And this created reality is relational, supernatural, and in some sense imitative of the relation whereby the Father generates the Son, a relation that has terminated in the divine hypostasis of the Son. Now that relation is paternity. That is a relation which terminates in the Son. This same theme is taken up again in the, in, later in the summer where he asks whether there is only one being in Christ. And Aquinas comes to basically the same conclusion. 
And thus, since the human nature is united to the Son of God, hypostatically or personally, as was said above, and not accidentally, it follows that by the human nature there accrued to him no new personal being, but only a new relation of a pre-existing personal being to the human nature, in such a way that the person is said to subsist not merely in the divine, but also in the human nature. What occurs in the incarnation is a creation of, quote, a new relation of a pre-existing personal being to the human nature, which occurs in such a way that the person is said to subsist not merely in the divine, but also in the divine nature. Now, if pushed, we could refer to the term of this relation as what's called the secondary act of existence, that constitutes Jesus as existing as the Son of God. Aquinas doesn't use that expression in the Summa, but he does refer to it in another piece that he wrote on the uh, hypostatic union, which was written just after this. So it represents a further development of specifying what's going on here. So it's a metaphysical term, uh, the act of existence or the act of being that constitutes Jesus as the Son of God. Now, before concluding this examination of the use of contingent predication in relation to the missions of the Spirit as grace and the Son in the... Oh, sorry, could we have the next slide? Because it just puts it into diagrammatic. Okay, good to have a diagram. So we've got the two processions, but we've got these created terms or created effects, sanctifying grace and the secondary act of existence. This is a classic structure of missions and processions uh, that was part of our sort of common theological heritage. That seems to be lost sight of recently. Now, before concluding uh, examination, this examination, the use of contingent predication, it's worth examining another instance where Aquinas does not use the same framework, but potentially could have done so. This is an important example because of its ongoing implications for contemporary theologians. It concerns Aquinas' handling of the metaphysics of the beatific vision. Now, this is a very difficult and controverted topic. In one of his handlings of this in the Summa, he lists something like 26 objections. This is, I think, no other article has anywhere near this number of objections. And he quotes about 13 authorities. So it's clearly something that uh, is a difficult topic. Uh, the solution he arrived at, uh, solution arrived at posits the divine essence as in some sense acting as the form in relation to our intellect. But when any created intellect sees the essence of God, the essence of God itself becomes the intelligible form of the intellect. Hence it is necessary that some supernatural disposition should be added to the intellect in order that it may be raised up to such a great and sublime height. In the theological lexicon of Karl Rahner, this analysis gives rise to the notion of quasi-formal causality. The divine essence acts as if quasi it is united to the intellect, 
so that it sees the divine essence in itself. Brahma then uses this construct as a template for his discussion of grace and incarnation. As the article goes on to note, the supernatural disposition is a created light, a light of glory, which is necessary to see the essence of God, not in order to make the essence of God intelligible, but in order to enable the intellect to understand in the same way as a habit makes a power able to act. Now, what is missing here, I would contend, is the same logic that Aquinas has used in relation to sanctifying grace and incarnation. In both these cases, there is a contingent reality predicated to divinity as son and spirit, which is a relational reality that in some sense imitates the processions of son and spirit. Now regarding the beatific vision, we again have a created reality in the intellect of the blessed, the light of glory, as a created reality in us, it can only be a relational reality in God, for, to quote Augustine, everything that can be said about God in time, which was not said about him before, is said by way of a relationship. Either this relationship is to the divine essence alone, in which case we have simply the creature-creator relationship, which does not attain God as Trinitarian or it is an entry into a relational reality of the persons of the Trinity in some way yet to be specified. This would allow a properly Trinitarian account of the beatific vision. And this is the direction Lonergan takes. And just to recap there, what's, what Rana has done is move from a non-Trinitarian account of the beatific vision to try and and to use the construct of that to then try and understand the Trinitarian relations of the two processions. And what we're going to do is move in the other way. So we're going to use the sort of construct that Aquinas used for the processions in order to say something about the beatific vision. So we're moving now into uh, the beginnings of the sort of thing that Lonergan is doing, though he doesn't necessarily do it this way, but I think this illuminates the issue. The question we can now pose is, what if Rana had moved in the opposite direction, moving not from the beatific vision to the missions, but from the missions to the beatific vision? What would this look like? Could we then have a Trinitarian account of the beatific vision? Now, the traditional scholastic account of the beatific vision seeks to address a question of how to understand the biblical witness that we shall see God face to face, taken to mean without the mediation of any creature, and so know as fully as we are known. How then can our finite consciousness apprehend God? The scholastic response is that the human nature cannot do this unaided and so requires the light of glory a supernatural elevation of our humanity, which empowers us to truly participate in the divine essence. Now, this light of glory is a created reality, something in us. At the same time, it is strictly supernatural. Can we relate it to a divine person, 
We might, for example, think of the light of glory then as a further instance of the missions of the Son and the Spirit. Rana, for example, thinks of the beatific vision as a completion of the life of grace. Is there an alternative? For an example, might we want to bring the Father into our account of the beatific vision? If you want to do this, something more is needed. This something more could be to generalise the structure Aquinas has given us. What makes Aquinas' structure work is a conjunction of procession with a created term of the procession to constitute the mission. However, each procession specifies two distinct relations. If we take the procession of the, far, of the Son from the Father, we have two relations, Father to Son and Son to Father. They're just the obverse of one another. What if we would generalise Aquinas as a structure by considering not processions, but relations conjoined with a created term? Then we might consider the light of glory, <coughs> not in terms of the processions, but as an instance of a relation that terminates in the Father. The light of glory could be thought of as a created participation in the relation from the Son to the Father. This is not a mission, because the Son does not send the Father. But it is the presence of the Father through this form of participation in a Trinitarian relation. So that's that in diagrammatic form. Now, scholastic theology is very familiar with the notion of four Trinitarian relations <coughs> that arise from the processions. Traditionally, these have been called paternity, father to son, filiation, son to father, active spiration, father and son to spirit, and passive spiration, spirit to son and father. So really the relations, the four relations, are just the two processions and their obverse. This means we have now have four possible ways of participating in the Trinitarian relations two of which we already know through the two missions as incarnation and grace. The other two add something new. And we're now in a position to spell out the final hypothesis, indeed what we call the four-point hypothesis, whereby Lonigan states his conclusions linking the four relations to four created participations in the divine nature. And excuse the long quote. This is it in all its glory. First, then, there are four real divine relations, really identical with the divine substance. And therefore, there are four very special modes that ground the external limitation of the divine substance. These are these created terms. Next, there are four absolutely supernatural realities, which are never found uninformed namely the secondary active existence of the Incarnation, sanctifying grace, the habit of charity, and the light of glory. You have to, all this of course is, is all thoroughly scholastic language and it's a barrier to getting, over, getting through to that. It would not be inappropriate therefore to say that the secondary active existence of the Incarnation is a created participation of paternity, 
acquire paternity because that's a relation that terminates in the son and so has a special relation to the son. That sanctifying grace is a participation of active spiration and so has a special relation to the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The habit of charity is a participation of passive spiration and so has a special relation to the Father and the Son. And the light of glory is a participation of sonship and so in a most perfect way brings the children of adoption back to the Father. What this adds to the classical construct of processions and missions found in Aquinas is the two additional relations, filiation and passive spiration, to give two further created participations in the divine nature, the light of glory and the habit of charity. And that's what it looks like. So it's really just what we had before, only we've added in two extra created terms or the two extra created relations, oh, two extra Trinitarian relations. People say, it's so, so complicated. And I say, well, really, it's just going from two to four. Uh, mathematically, it's not a big leap. Now, I'm not suggesting that Lonergan followed the type of argument I spelled out here. In fact, we know very little of the origins of this in Lonergan's thought. There is a shift, though I think there is a shift in his earlier language of created communications of the divine nature to that of created participations in the divine nature, which I think helped facilitate his expansion of the schema. The communications, there are only two communications, and they are the two processions and the two missions. But this expansion in the language of uh, participations uh, helped, I think. We have an earlier version. He wrote, some, he wrote a work on grace where he has an earlier version of this, not quite the same as his final version. Uh, and he does some tinkering with it with his works in Christology, which were prior to this. And he never developed it further past this present reference since he moved from these strictly theological concerns to more methodological ones and then on to questions in economics. An interesting case of what if. Now, just to give you some feel of how this pans out when it's actually applied to something, uh, I want to have a look now at what this looks like when we look at Christology. So there are many directions in which we take this construct that are theologically fruitful. I'd note in particular Robert Doran's linkage of these four created participations with grace and the three theological virtues, faith, hope and charity. This is really significant because it gives the classic uh, theological virtues a Trinitarian underpinning. As far as I know, that's just never been done, and I think it's really significant and allows us to formulate what I call a non-communio Trinitarian ecclesiology, uh, grounded in grace and lived out in faith, hope and charity. Um, so this is important, as I say, it gives these central virtues, it, it actually elevates these theological virtues and gives them a new significance. But tonight I want to move into another direction, which is a Christological direction. 
Uh, we'll begin with the observation, perhaps not uncontroversial, that each of these four created participations in the divine life that Lonigan speaks of occurs in the person of Jesus Christ. So let me spell this out. First, there is a relation to paternity, which terminates in the Son. The created term of this relation allows us to say that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, that this is his personal identity or who he is. This is the basic mystery of the Incarnation affirmed at the Council of Chalcedon about the personal identity of Jesus. Second, there is a relation of filiation which terminates in the Father. This would mean that Jesus enjoys the light of glory. Now, according to long tradition, and with some degree of magisterial authority, Jesus enjoys the beatific vision during his earthly sojourn. Lonergan's work posits, posits an intrinsic connection here between his identity as son and his enjoyment of the beatific vision. It also means that Jesus has a unique revelatory role that arises from this. Now, while there has been some significant theological discussion and disagreement about whether Jesus actually did enjoy the beatific vision during his lifetime, clearly Slonigan uh, uh, certainly held it as real, while dispelling certain misconceptions about what this vision might consist in. Now, these two themes of Jesus' personal identity as the second person of the Trinity and his enjoyment of the beatific vision occupied a good deal of what might be called classical Christology in scholastic mode. However, what the four-point hypothesis reveals is that this is only half a Christology, since it omits a, specific, a specifically pneumatological aspect of, from consideration. But, for example, according to Aquinas, Jesus also enjoys and requires sanctifying grace which is the presence of the Spirit. Now, this present stand now allows us for a more developed spirit Christology. What I like about this is you get it for free. You don't actually have to do any work, and that's a sign of a good structure where stuff just falls out. Uh, and so third, there is a relation of active spiration which terminates in the Spirit. Through this relation, Jesus enjoys the love of God in the same day, way that we do, as God's love poured into his heart by the Holy Spirit given to him. On him the Spirit rests and is given without reserve. Through this gift of the Spirit, Jesus truly is the anointed one of God, the Christ, whom the Father calls his beloved, in whom he delights. In more recent pious parlance, this allows us to speak of the Spirit as the heart of Jesus, his sacred heart. It is from this core of being loved unrestrictedly by the Father that all Jesus' human actions flow. Finally, there is a relation of passive spiration which terminates in the Father and the Son. Here we can identify that, that we can identify this with Jesus' doing the work of the Father, a strong theme in John's Gospel but which appears in the synoptic tradition, I would argue, as working for the kingdom of God. Jesus responds to being loved by the Father with his own human love of God, with all his mind, heart and strength, 
and his love of neighbour as himself. Indeed, the whole of the Gospels speak of this work of Jesus, his mission from the Father to proclaim God's kingdom, culminating in his death and resurrection. That's, that's a way of transposing out of the language of habit of charity into something a bit more contemporary. There have been a chorus of theological voices noting the lack of a proper account of the spirit in the life of Jesus, with calls for a spirit Christology being made loud and clear. Some who have responded to these calls have done so by significantly modifying their Trinitarian theologies or even dismissing the Trinity itself. So Roger Haight's work on spirit Christology just misses the boat altogether. An approach to Christology through Lonergan's four-point hypothesis allows us to respond to those calls in a manner which is entirely constant with both doctrinal and systematic traditions by generalising a construct based on two processions and missions to one involving four Trinitarian relations and corresponding created participations in the divine nature. So this involves an extension of the tradition rather than its modification. Now let me just conclude with some comments about where this stands in the Lonergan uh, corpus. Bernard Lonergan is perhaps best known for his two major works, his philosophical work Insight and his methodological work Method in Theology. Yet for a considerable part of his career, Lonergan worked at the Gregorian University, teaching courses in Trinity and Christology, labouring under what he later called impossible conditions. Cry of professors everywhere. <laughs> in the course of this work, he developed some profound theological terms which have now been made available in English translation through the publication of his collected works. What we have considered this evening is one of his most original contributions, going beyond his Master Aquinas, to make his own mark in the discipline of systematic theology. It is a development rich in possibilities, as both Robert Doran and I have attempted to demonstrate in various... Um, and just uh, In various... Uh, this is just a graphic... Uh, in various works and publications. However, these were developments that Lonergan himself never investigated, so he never took this up. Increasingly, his thought turned to methodological issues resulting in the publication of Method in Theology. He looked back at the theological <coughs> styles of, this, of his theological manuals as a relic from the past, not congruent with the direction he thought theology should take into the future. With the publication of Method and spurred on by the challenge of liberation theology, his intellectual energy turned to questions in economics, taking up work he had undertaken in his spare time in the 1940s. A few people know that two of the volumes in Monaghan's collected works are specialist works in economics. Um, Apart from a few cursory comments in various essays, Lonergan did not return to these profound and difficult questions in Trinity and Christology. 
And while we may regret this decision, it has left the field open for others, such as myself, to unpack some of the riches in his work in systematic theology. And I hope this evening has given you just a taste of what these might be. Thank you very much. A very magisterial uh, paper or lecture in which you showed us a, a movement in the history of thought and within Lonergan's thought and then within Trinitarian thought and on, on every one of those levels that was a very interesting contribution so I'm sure there will be plenty of questions I have plenty but I'll <laughs> um, going back to the, the title of how how the Trinitarian God acts in creation. Um, what's the human, what did Logan see as being the human part of this? <coughs> um, well, uh, we, like, what he's getting at here is these created participations are significant modifications of our human living. Now, while this is a, a, what you might call a formal structure, and very much is a formal structure, um, one, of the thing, one of the works that has to go on then is transposing this into phenomenological language. So what does it mean to speak of sanctifying grace? So he does, he does get into some of that in his work in Method in Theology. Uh, indirectly, but I, the the sort of um, uh, I suppose the way in which a number of us would think of it is in terms of uh, the experience of being loved by God uh, and the transformative power of that. So Lonergan speaks of that in terms of religious conversion, um, and that being a that being a sort of game changer in terms of the way in which we live our life. Uh, so there's a significant modification of our living because of that. Uh, but there is also a response that emerges. So you get this just as active, just as active and passive spiration of two sides of one coin. So being loved by God evokes of itself our response to love back. So that sort of um, uh, love then is made manifest, as I said, in, in the case of Jesus, in the case of us, as loving God and loving our neighbour. So rather than talk about habit of charity, which is sort of, you know, language that doesn't really take us anywhere, uh, I think we need a sort of, phenomenology of interiority of what these terms actually do. The one that's really difficult that Bob Doran has been working on is this so-called secondary act of existence because we don't have any access to that because it's in Jesus. We can talk about our experience of grace, but we can't talk about what that might mean. Um, well, it's more difficult to talk about it. He talks... Uh, Bob talks about it as a mission consciousness in Jesus. Um, I, I'm still, I'm still puzzled. I, 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 I think part of the difficulty here is that when we talk about that secondary, that 
metaphysical term, secondary active existence. We tend to think of it as a sort of already out there now, now thing, like you've got an active existence now. Well, now your active existence began when you were conceived and will continue for all eternity. So that active existence is a, is a, has an arc, which is your totality. Uh, and the sort of category that Lonergan uses for that is incarnate meaning. It's the meaning of a whole life. Um, but, uh, yeah. As I say, that the, the metaphysical language these days is a real distraction, but this is respecting the way in which the ideas developed. Yeah. Um. So, uh, while people others are thinking of their questions, one would be: Is there something? Troubling about one one of the four relations understood in relation to creation is related to the incarnation mm. only. Uh, I mean, and then all of the four you're saying can be played out in Christology. Yeah. And I feel there's something disturbing there. Um, what about us? Do you mean? Or? Um, Uh, not disturbing about us. There's just something about the system that seems a little strange there. Well, I mean, again, the, the system can be thought as a formal structure, which is nice. Um, how these actually manifest in the created order is actually an empirical question. Like, one of the issues that um, needs that uh, we're uh, discussed in, in working with this is: um, is there a created participation in us of paternity, which is not a secondary act of existence, but which is analogous to grace? And of course, the obvious thing to identify that with would be faith. Because in faith we say Christ lives in us, not I, but Christ lives in me. And it's quite possible to think of the indwelling, not only of the Holy Spirit, but of Christ in us, as a further example of a created participation in this uh, term of um, paternity. Similarly, uh, while we don't enjoy the beatific vision in this life, I don't, maybe some of you do. <laughs> but um, uh, we do aspire to it in hope. So that there's a sense in which we can talk about our participation in filiation as a virtue of hope. So that's, that's the sort of work that Bob Doran's been doing. Uh, and it, um, it takes... Uh, I talked about Jesus because it's sort of paradigmatic of Christian life. But there are differences between him and us, and they're operating at the level of that faith-hope thing. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, they are way that the, the virtues of faith and hope are anticipations of that, that fuller uh, reality that is in Christ. Um, under, underlying this is, is a 
another question, which, um, and I think, uh, sorry, Augustine was onto this uh, when he talked about anything that we say about God in relationship to creation, we have to say in terms of categories of relation. And the issue is uh, really uh, the whole heart of the grace-nature debate. How, how can we enter into a relationship with God which is not just the creator-creation, creator-creature relation? Now, Rana actually hits on this in his own way where he, in his little book on the Trinity, he basically says... Uh, only a Trinitarian God can be a self-communicated God. And there's something, that's there's an insight there which is quite right, that if we're going to enter into another type of relation with God, it can only be on the base of inter, basis of internal relationality within the Godhead itself. Anything else would be simply a mediation by a higher order creature like an angel or something like that. And that's specifically what the New Testament rules out in the book of Hebrews. It's not through angels that he has brought this, but through his own son. So there's a sense in which the, res- the resolution to the whole issue of grace nature is a Trinitarian resolution. And that these four types of participations... Um, are possible because God is internally differentiated through relationality. Uh, and then, so these are all instances of supernatural existence. Uh, one more follow-up, just trying to understand it all, that, but there isn't a place that I've heard you talking about for uncreated grace, that concept. Yeah, well, that's God. Whatever is uncreated is God. Right. So they are the, the, the persons of the Trinity. In this case, it's actually the relations. But insofar as um, we're affected by them, it's a created effect. Yes. Yeah. And so there would be a sharp distance difference from Rahner, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There, there, there is an issue here. It's very clear that the uncreated grace is the cause of created grace. And a lot of the debate, um, there's actually a, a bit of a, I suppose, a bit of a funny story because in, when Lonigan was doing his course on grace, um, he was teaching the seminarians this, I think, in in Montreal, and um, he was following the standard textbook in which created grace was necessary for uncreated grace. This is wrong. This has got to be wrong. So you love this, all the students love this. He just walked into class and said, I'm suspending class for a couple of weeks until I sort this out. (laughs) Uh, And so he just cancelled his classes. (laughs) And he worked on it and came back in two or three weeks and said, right, now we can go. Um, So it's very clear that created grace is, is, uncreated grace is a cause there's no dependence on uh, on God on this created grace. It is uh, the term Lonergan uses. It's a subsequent condition um, to uh, 
for for it to be true that God has acted here. That it is no in no way is a created grace the cause of something here. Um, but yes, he and, and in that regard, his solution to it is different from Rama's. Uh, well, not in that regard. Yeah. Rana also talks yeah. about uncreated grace as primary. Yeah. Uh, but in the fact that uncreated grace wouldn't be experienced in Lonergan's by the human being, that would be the yeah. difference. I'm conscious that we're engaging in <laughs> quite technical yeah. sounding discussions, um, and it's one of the interesting features of your paper that you're confronting some traditional technical things oh, yes. and doing something very original and refreshing with them, but there's a difficulty for an audience not trained mm. in those technicalities of how to appropriate it, which yeah. you've gone some way towards, but yeah. um, uh, it's a, I think it's just a difficulty that always yeah. faces Trinitarian theology. Yeah. How do you do it really seriously in a way that's not um, just a kind of appeal to a few yeah. slogans? Uh, without losing yeah. a lot of your audience, sure. but while engaging, it's, but I'm, I'm yeah. I don't I, I'm thinking we have three fairly technically trained people in the audience, <laughs> who um, so because we don't have too much time, so I would just say that Gabby, Paul, and Michael should feel free to be unleashed if any of you want <laughs> to, uh, to come in on that. Yeah, no just, just on that yeah. because uh, there there is a further task of communication, and it's a very very important task. And you can actually strip all the technicalities out of this and just do all this in terms of reference to certain biblical quotations. Um, and it then becomes an effective way of communicating the way in which uh, particularly the theological virtues are a participation in the life of the Trinity. Uh, so there is a possibility of doing it in a way which communicates in a non-technical way. I had to write an article for um, a Catholic Health in America. Um, well, they asked me to do it, and I thought, well, how am I going to do this with a group of edu- with a group of health professionals in Catholic institutions? I can't talk about Augustine and Aquinas. And, so just went straight back to biblical texts and using the framework to explicate it. I'm not getting too technical. I'm just, I think I'm interested in going back to the question you, you, you were addressing earlier around this being very technical and scholastic and yeah. not having a sort of developed phenomenological yeah. But is there anything like that in Monica's writing? Because I mean, you know, if you think of Whereas move from this to insight, and it's sort of all from, you know, begins phenomenologically. Yes, and this, yeah. There are bits and pieces in the middle, like verbum and so on. But yeah. is, there anything, is there anything that remotely begins to take this forward in a... Uh, he, he never refers back to this stuff. Mm. Never. Uh, but he does develop <laughs> increasingly in the sort of late 70s and early 80s before he died... Uh, so the essays, which are in third collection, increasingly talk does develops a phenomenology of religious experience. Now, uh, he doesn't tie it back to this because he's trying to talk in a way which is not specifically Christian. On the other hand, if in fact other religious traditions are 
sharing in the divine life in some way, we would expect to see analogous forms of religious experience present in them. Uh, and I've written about this in some of my some of my articles, whereby um, you know, are there things analogous to faith, hope, and love? Are there things analogous to the experience of being loved by God? Uh, this is actually quite intriguing because it opens up the possibility of an empirically based study of spiritual traditions, which would in a sense, not verify, but would resonate with this structure. That's quite interesting, I think. Um, but it would be a massive task well beyond my capabilities. Um, I think my, Karen would say my mathematical background is coming through here. So <laughs> I like structures. I realise that inviting people to respond, I should have picked on Rick as well as another person who might have a technical um, uh, from from Aquinas, is there anything you want to say? In well, uh, I'm, suffering from, I'm suffering from vertigo after your because <laughs> um, I, I wasn't familiar with Lonergan's take on, on this. Um, I, I mean, it makes sense to say that the historical missions are participations in the generation of the Word mm. and the procession of the Holy Spirit as love. That also supports some Christian anthropology in question 93 of the Summa Theology, first part. We've been made in the image of God because we can know and love yeah. God, even in the aftermath. Um, so all of that makes sense. But the arrows that are going the other way seem to go against the grain, so to speak, <laughs> going against the pull the sack, yeah. so yeah. to speak. And I'm not comfortable with that. I know, I know I'm not putting it very correctly or... Yeah. It's only an intuition. There's something going against the grain yeah. uh, of receiving the word, not just in, in the incarnation, but also in the indwelling of the soul, mm -hmm. uh, which needs to be mentioned, as well as the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So I, I wonder, what does this mean for our understanding of the human person in terms of knowing and loving God? Um, those... Those, those operations of knowing and loving God um, are themselves grounded in... They are, they are primarily responsive. Like, they are responses to something. Now, what I, what I think this is doing is capturing... There, there, there is... I mean, when, when we were first developing this sort of schema... Uh, Charles Heffling, who's a Lonergan scholar, was quite critical of what Bob and I were doing. And he said, ah, oh, this is just operative and cooperative grace. Now, there's a sense in which Charles is right, because this is about an operative moment and a cooperative moment. Uh, but um, say when we talk about knowing God, there is an operative moment even in knowing and a cooperative moment. So, um, for example, um, uh, when my wife and I are having various discussions about different things, she will say, why didn't I see that before? 
because I'm always right on this thing. But anyway, why didn't I see that before? When we have an insight, that's operative. We don't, like, it happens. It happens to us. When we formulate that insight and give it texture and conceptualise it and stuff, that's cooperative. Those two motions, those two movements there are, Aquinas would say, uh, analogous to the procession of the word. There's an operative moment, the insight, there's a cooperative moment, which is the speaking of the word. Uh, what we're doing there is that when you talk about knowing and loving God, you're focusing on that cooperative moment. What we're doing here by introducing the other two arrows is focusing on the operative moment. Okay. Um, I think we have time for one more question. Yep, Gabby, and then we should allow people to uh, go because there's a mass at seven o'clock that we should be careful not to intrude on. So, um. um, I'm just curious to see if you talk about deification at all because it doesn't feel as though this is a million miles away from a formal. Yeah. Yeah, certainly it's a different language from the sort of um, theosis language and um, that's that may or may not be problematic. Uh, this is specifying a four, four different forms of deification in a way um, and doing it in a Trinitarian way, so that's nice. I know um, certainly in the Eastern tradition there's a lot of emphasis on the divine energies, the uncreated divine energies. I have problems with that construct, but one of the difficulties with it is that um, it's not clear how those relate in any way to the Trinitarian life of God. But also if you go back before, so back to sort of the Cappadocians, before yeah. that concept was really going strong. Yeah. Yeah, look, uh, and I'm not an expert in the Cappadocians, so I can't really say. Um, I, I tend to focus on the, that element in the Western tradition. That's where I feel comfortable. But I think this is, this is analogous in some sense to that. It is talking about how we participate in the life of God. Uh, and it specifies it in terms of various Trinitarian relations. Um, but it's it's uh, yeah just a, a different way of doing it I think. Okay. Well, um, I think Rick put his finger on the word of intellectual vertigo is what we're having the pleasure of experiencing <laughs> of um, some some seriously new ideas put it in a very well integrated uh, traditional form uh, is is quite a it's it's the it's the it's the the really difficult thing to do as a theologian to have something new to say and to show how it how thoroughly uh, traditional it is. So congratulations on a very <laughs> impressive and uh, magisterial lecture. Thank you very much.